Hello and welcome to Hugh's Joy of Food, a bite-sized podcast celebrating all that's amazing about everything edible, from the simplest snack to the fanciest feast. I'm Hugh Smithson-Wright, and this week on Hugh's Joy of Food, I'm taking a cross-channel trip down memory lane with a review of historic Bouillon Chartier in Paris, telling a listener how to spot the best steak tartare in Ask Hugel, and giving my bank manager palpitations but nourishing my soul, shopping for the finest food money can buy at Fortnum & Mason in Treat of the Week. Each week on Hugh's Joy of Food, I review a restaurant in some way, whether it's one I've actually been to recently or a home delivery, be that a ready-to-eat takeaway or a make-at-home meal kit. First, a disclaimer. My job as a restaurant PR and consultant means that I'm paid to promote the interests of the handful of restaurants I represent. If I feature a client on this podcast, I'll make that clear, like I do on my social media channels, and in all cases, I'll make it clear if all or any part of a meal I review was complimentary. You can rest assured that everywhere I review, I recommend. This show is about the joy of food, so if you're looking for vicious eviscerations, this probably isn't the podcast for you. With that out of the way, it's time for this week's review. Although it's probably a little premature to be thinking of trips abroad at the moment, when we only have a date from which travel might be allowed at the earliest, I'm sure I'm not alone in having dared to allow myself to start thinking about where my first excursion will be to once we do get the green light to travel again. It's an easy question to answer, because I can say without hesitation that the first place I'll be heading as soon as I'm allowed to is Paris. Paris and I have a long-running love affair, I lived there for a year when I was at university, then for several years after graduating I worked for Eurostar and used the perk of free travel to visit Paris as often as I could. Ever since then I've tried to visit Paris at least a couple of times a year. I have a couple of groups of friends who I'll go on day trips with for shopping or an exhibition and my husband and I try to go at least once a year for a long weekend. In 2019 one of my clients opened a restaurant in Paris and although I didn't do the PR for it, entrusting that task to a local agency, I did get to go out there when the restaurant was in the planning stages to check out competitors with her and eat our way around several potential neighbourhoods to find the best fit. Nice work if you can get it. Now it goes without saying that restaurant-wise you are absolutely spoiled for choice in Paris. The French take their food very seriously. The pause déjeuner, or proper lunch hour, is enshrined in law – and you can find every world cuisine at every price point, from fashionable street food to wildly expensive three Michelin-starred temples of gastronomy captained by some of the most famous chefs in the world. But the one restaurant I always go to whenever I'm in Paris is one of its oldest, not to mention cheapest, Bouillon Chartier on Rue du Faubourg Montmartre in the 9th arrondissement. Founded in 1896, Chartier was one of the first Bouillon affordable, informal restaurants serving just the eponymous bouillon or broth alongside one or two traditional dishes. The format rapidly expanded, with there being at one stage about 200 across the city, all serving much the same menu, making these possibly the first chain restaurants as we know them today. There are only a few bouillons left, but Chartier is reassuringly almost unchanged. It still doesn't take bookings, it still serves a familiar, albeit much longer menu of classic French dishes, and by Paris standards, it's still very cheap. Open all day from 11.30 until midnight, 365 days of the year, Chartier is wildly popular, 
a fact that's reflected in the queue, which despite having its own waiting room can still snake out onto the street. Don't let this put you off though. Turnover is faster than a TGV, so you're unlikely to wait more than half an hour even at the busiest times. About halfway down the queue, there's even a little kiosk selling, depending on the time of year, warming mulled wine or cooling sangria for just a euro a pop. When finally through the revolving doors, you'll instantly recognise the interior if you've ever been to London's Brasserie Zadale or Balthazar in London or New York. They're unashamedly modelled on Chartier, from the soaring ceiling supported by gilded pillars to the dark wooden furniture and patterned pink napkins on paper tablecloths. This isn't to accuse either of those restaurants of plagiarism. Indeed, Jeremy King of Corbin and King fame, who owns Brasserie Zadale, very happily credits Chartier as his inspiration. Speed is everything at Chartier, so you'll be seated and handed a menu in seconds. That menu, by the way, will almost certainly be in French, but don't worry if you don't speak the language. Menus are available in numerous other languages, including English. Or you could just look at the menu online before you go, memorise or make a note of what you want to order, and simply point at it when the waiter comes to take your order. Whatever you do, don't even think about asking to modify a dish. Everything's served in such volumes here that most dishes are ready prepared and will simply be grabbed from the kitchen by your waiter and dropped at the table, sometimes almost literally, within barely a minute of you ordering. But don't think this means that they're less than fresh. Dishes sell too quickly to be sitting around for too long. As for what to order, well, you might out of curiosity want to order the potato soup or grated carrots just to see what one euro, yes, one euro, buys you. The answer would be a perfectly decent, very simple starter. Or you might say, when in France, and order six or a dozen escargot, snails baked in their shells with garlic butter. Personally, I like to go for one of the excellent salads, either frisé with lardons, or my favourite, endive with roquefort. For a whole extra two euros, I also like to order oeuf d'or mayonnaise, hard-boiled eggs and mayonnaise, for the table. Main courses fall firmly into one of two categories, familiar favourites, and more unusual French specialities. From the former, you can't go wrong with steak cachet, chopped steak, basically a bunless burger, in a green peppercorn sauce, or roast chicken, both served with a mountain of hot, crispy frites. The choucroute à l'alsacienne, sauerkraut garnished with a pork sausage and potatoes, is excellent, as is the duck confit. Among the latter, less familiar dishes, there's fried pig's trotter, calf's head with sauce gribiche, tripe, an andouillette, a pungent, peppery sort of sausage made from pig's intestines, which I can only describe as an acquired taste. Put it this way, I'm a very adventurous, entirely unsqueamish eater, and having tried it once, not at Chartier to be fair, I would have to have eaten all the other survivors of the plane crash and my own legs before you could persuade me to eat Andriette again. For afters, a selection of cheeses can be ordered by the piece, or there's half a dozen or so classic desserts, including rambaba, rice pudding, Chartier's signature coupe of Chantilly cream, or my favourite, stewed prunes with vanilla ice cream. Don't expect to linger over coffee. Your bill will be scribbled onto your tablecloth the moment your puds are cleared, and I guarantee you will blink in some disbelief at just how small that bill is. Even if you order the most expensive dishes on the menu for every course, you'll struggle to spend more than €25 Euros a head. Even with a bottle of the most expensive wine, €17, Euros, from the short list, it's unlikely your bill will come to more than €30, Euros, or about £26 per person. And the staff, while not renowned for their charm and repartee, 
won't bat an eyelid if you order the three cheapest dishes for each course, which, I've done the sums, would come to just €9.50. At these prices, and with so many newer, trendier restaurants to choose from in Paris, you'd think that Chartier would be strictly for the tourists. But while they make up a significant part of the clientele, exit via the gift shop, Chartier is still much loved by locals, who are very much in the majority. I said a few weeks ago when reviewing a meal from Maison Patron that the menu couldn't be more French if you put a beret on it and called it Pierre. Bouillon Chartier is Pierre. I don't know when I'll next be able to get to Paris, but the moment I do, I know exactly where I'll be heading for dinner. For all information, visit Bouillon, that's B-O-U-I-L-L-O-N, dash Chartier, C-H-A-R-T-I-E-R, dot com. Each week, I answer a listener's burning culinary question in Ask Hugel. This week's question comes from Kylie, no, not that one, in Newcastle under Lyme, who says, Hey Hugel, like you, I'm a big fan of steak tartare and usually order it whenever I see it on a menu. Now, I know any dish can vary from restaurant to restaurant, but sometimes it feels like what I'm getting isn't what I'm expecting at all. What should I be expecting from a steak tartare? Should it include capers and cornichons? What about onion? How spicy should it be? And where do you stand on being charged extra for an egg yolk? I'd love to have a benchmark from which to measure the quality of every steak tartare I order. Oh, Kylie, what a gift this question is. If ever I were to be invited on to just a minute, I'm certain I could speak without hesitation, repetition or deviation about steak tartare for well over my allotted 60 seconds. In fact, I think I could speak about it for well more than the allotted 15 minutes or so of an episode of Hugh's Joy of Food. But let's start at the very beginning and explain what steak tartare actually is, as I'm sure some listeners won't know. Basically, steak tartare, or beef tartare as it's sometimes called, is finely chopped raw steak, usually fillet, and usually served with toast, salad or french fries. You might think, isn't that just a raw burger? But it's not. The difference is in the hand chopping of the beef, rather than the mincing usually used for burgers. As you found, Kylie, there are many different ways of garnishing and serving steak tartare, and there genuinely is no definitive recipe. This could be because, like many popular dishes, no one's entirely sure of the dish's origins. By some accounts, the name derives from the marauding tartar's taste for raw meat. By others, it's because sometime in the last century, some restaurants started serving steak à l'américaine, or chopped raw beef, with tartar sauce. That latter interpretation would certainly explain why most chefs prepare steak tartare with cornichons or gherkins and capers and often a raw egg yolk, a sort of deconstructed tartar sauce. Sometimes these are served on the side so that you can mix your own tartare to taste and although it's increasingly rare, there are still some restaurants that prepare your tartare table side or à la minute so you can see and tailor exactly what goes into it. There's usually salt and pepper involved too, and some restaurants will ask whether you'd like your tartare spicy, and if so, how spicy, which is achieved by adding Tabasco sauce or another hot sauce, and sometimes Worcestershire sauce too. There being no definitive recipe for steak tartare, it's hard to say what's correct, but let me tell you what I think makes a great tartare, based on my very extensive experience. It should go without saying that you should only order steak tartare where you can be absolutely confident that it's made using super fresh meat. 
I know and understand that many people are squeamish about eating raw meat, but it really is completely safe, provided it's fresh meat, freshly prepared. A good rule of thumb is to ask for your tartare without a particular ingredient. If you're told that's impossible, then that probably means the tartare's been pre-prepared and you're better off ordering something else. I think as a bare minimum, you want some form of emulsion, either good olive oil or an egg yolk. To answer your question about whether it's fair to charge for an egg yolk, I'm inclined to say yes if it's an optional extra, but on the basis that to my taste it's an essential part of the dish, I think it should be factored into the price. I love capers and cornichons, both for their taste and texture. I'm less of a fan of onion, because even a little can overwhelm the delicate taste of the beef. For the same reason, I'll always check before ordering whether there's any parsley in a restaurant's tartare. I am absolutely opposed to parsley being anywhere in or near a steak tartare, but then I hate parsley, so I'm generally opposed to it being in or near anything. Spicing-wise, I used to like my tartare fiery, so I'd go heavy on the Tabasco. But as time's gone by, I've come to appreciate the subtlety of an only very slightly spiced steak tartare. In Rosso Brera, a restaurant I'm very fond of in Milan, they serve the meat itself just lightly drizzled in oil, with mustard as one of the accompaniments on the side, and I now find that to be preferable to hot sauce as a way of giving the tartare a kick of heat. Just to throw a curveball into the mix, one variant I love which you'll find in Korean restaurants is, excuse my terrible pronunciation, ukwe, a tartar made with beef cut into very thin strips rather than diced, dressed in sesame oil, layered with matchsticks of Korean pear and topped with an egg yolk. Do look out for it, Kylie. It really is delicious. Ultimately, to answer your question as to what makes the best steak tartar, all I can really say is, the best one is the one that's exactly to your personal taste. And I can't think of anything more pleasurable than working out exactly what your personal taste is by eating as much steak tartare as you can, as often as you can, until, like Goldilocks and her porridge, you find the one that's just right. If you'd like me to have a go at answering your food-related question, you can tweet me at hrwright or send me an email to hrw at hughrichardwright.com. For my final segment, Treat of the Week, each week I share something food or drink related that's been putting a smile on my face. This week, it's the fabulous food halls of world-renowned grocer to royalty Fortnum and Mason, which have been a source of great comfort to me, if not to my bank balance, during this latest seemingly endless lockdown. Established in 1707, Fortnum and Mason is such a household name that it probably needs no introduction. But just in case you're unfamiliar with it, Fortnum's, as it's most often known, is a grand department store on Piccadilly in central London, of which the ground and lower ground floors are dedicated to food and drink, both under Fortnum's own brand and from other producers and suppliers who meet their buyers' incredibly high standards. Indeed, so well known is Fortnum's for its food that many people don't even realise that there are four further floors selling homewares, men's and women's fashions and beauty, as well as five restaurants, including the fantastic Brasserie 45 German Street and the Diamond Jubilee Tea Lounge, serving what I think is possibly London's best afternoon tea. Lockdown has closed all but the two food floors, which despite selling many undeniably luxurious items, nonetheless meet the criteria to be counted as essential retail. Because I'm lucky enough to live within walking distance, 
I've taken to combining a very occasional masked whirl around Fortnum's food halls with my exercise walks, and I can't begin to tell you how good that's been for my mental health. You see, to enter Fortnum's is to momentarily escape a world that's blighted by a pandemic, and enter one where teas and coffees come in elegant green canisters, chocolate bars look like paperback books, and there are more varieties of jam than you knew there were fruits on the planet to make them from. Dozens of flavours of jewel-like handmade chocolates can be ordered by the piece or by the pound. Biscuits have names like Tophilosus or come in musical tins that look like a merry-go-round. Downstairs in the fresh food hall, the centrepiece is a cart that looks like it's just been wheeled in from the market, laden with the most perfect examples of any vegetable you'd care to name, and many that you couldn't. Butchery, cheese and fish counters, staffed by immensely friendly and knowledgeable staff, encircle row upon row of relishes, oils and canned goods, from lobster beasts to the Heinz baked beans Fortnum's was the first shop in all of Britain to stock. An extremely comprehensive drinks department stocks rare and fine wines and spirits, alongside Fortnum's own very reasonably priced house champagne. For just a few pounds extra, you can have the label personalised to make an absolutely exquisite gift for someone or yourself. The beauty of Fortnum's is that, while of course you could spend an absolute fortune here on expensive ingredients like caviar, crustacea and game, much of what they sell isn't all that expensive. Sure, it's not the kind of place you could afford to shop at every day, but as an occasional indulgence, filling a basket with a few bits and pieces from the food halls is a lovely act of self-care. Last week I left with a sliver of gorgeous truffled Italian cheese, a Castelfranco, that beautiful, bitter, pink-tinged variety of radicchio, and a few little boxes of their caramels in wonderful flavours like rhubarb and ginger and passion fruit and licorice to send to friends. And if you want to share the joy of something delicious from Fortnum's with someone, but don't live near the shop itself, you'll be pleased to know that just about everything they sell that isn't perishable is available to order via their website, if you fancied sending a hamper to Harrogate or some marmalade to Manchester. It's no exaggeration to say that my little forays to Fortnum's have helped to keep me sane during lockdown. I hope, whether in person or online, it's a pleasure you'll be able to treat yourself to soon too. You can plan a visit and browse the virtual shelves at fortnumandmason.com. Just before I go... I'd like to ask that if you're in a position to, you'll consider supporting one of the many brilliant charities working tirelessly to ensure that children, disadvantaged families and the homeless don't go hungry during the pandemic, such as Magic Breakfast, Fair Share, Street Smart and the Trussell Trust. That's it for this week. If you'd like to get in touch, you can tweet me at hrwright or drop me a line at hrw at hughrichardwright.com and I hope you'll join me next time for more of Hugh's Joy of Food.